The reading tonight is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, starting at verse 3, and it's on page 1161 of the Church Bibles. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify, purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is the word of the Lord. Pray whilst we stand. Loving Father, we've just prayed that you would purify our hearts. We've sung, my heart's one desire is to be holy. And Lord, we, we long that that would be true. And so we pray this evening as we gather around your words, we might hear your voice and that you might encourage us, help us to strive to be holy, set apart for you. And we pray this in the name of your dear son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do take a seat. Do keep 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 open. I want you to try and imagine this scenario. A couple uh, had a 17-year-old daughter. Uh, she'd grown up as part of the church family and from an early age, she had attended all the youth groups, all the clubs, all the Bible studies. She looked and sounded and lived like someone who, who loved the Lord. But then, age 17, her eyes begin to open. 
as she begins to see a world outside around her that she's never really seen before. And at school, she's, she's got in with the wrong crowds. And over the last six months, her parents have looked on feeling helpless as their daughter's been drawn away from God and to the world. And a lifestyle that gives little attention or care for Jesus. And the parents looking on see the potential damage that these friendships are doing. They, they see the dangers ahead. And they long for their daughter to see the error of her ways and come back to what's true and good. Now, I know that that isn't something that all of us have experienced. It's probably something that some of us have. Maybe we've been that son or daughter. But if you can imagine how the parents would be feeling in that situation, then I think we probably get a little insight into Paul's heart as he writes this part of his letter to the church in Corinth. Just look at verses 11 to 13 with me of chapter 6. To see, hear the affection in Paul's voice. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Paul sees himself as a, a spiritual father figure. He sees the, the church in Corinth as his children. He loves them. He's watched them grow. He's bared his soul to them. He's given everything for them. He's shared his life with them. And now he longs that they would feel similar affection for him. And so he pleads with them, open wide your hearts to me also. Paul's concern here isn't that the Corinthians would uh, love him in a way that would give him a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling inside. No, 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 no. Paul's concern is that if the Corinthians don't feel affection towards him, they won't feel affection for his message. And that would be a disaster for the church because the message that he has proclaimed is Christ crucified. A message of reconciliation. And it's only that message that Paul has preached that enables people to be right with God. And so yet again in this book, in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul is going to try and show this church that he loves, his spiritual children, that his ministry and his message are the real deal. And so firstly, a first point this evening, verses 3 to 9, Sacrificial service <clears throat> is the mark of authenticity. Sacrificial service is the mark of authentic authenticity. Um, commending yourself isn't a very British thing to do, is it? Um, we, feel, um, we feel awkward enough in public when others commend us. You know, it makes us feel embarrassed, awkward. Uh, yet alone that moment where we have to try and publicly commend ourselves. It's even worse for Christians, isn't it? I think Christians write the worst CVs in the world. <laughs> because we just don't want to push ourselves forward. We don't want to be seen as arrogant or proud. We don't want to commend ourselves. Six times in this letter, Paul has talked about commending 
himself or some aspect of his ministry to the Corinthian church. Six times. And we read one of those here in 4a, uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. But Paul is having to commend himself here because the false teachers in Corinth were making it their mission to discredit Paul, to discredit Paul's ministry and therefore, by implication, his message. They wanted to build their own reputations and the way they would do that would be to ridicule Paul. So Paul's commendations are never self-seeking. He doesn't want glory, he doesn't want fame or thanks. All he wants is people to see that his ministry is authentic. Unlike the false teachers who are bad-mouthing Paul. Because he cares about the message he preaches. So verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. What we read then in verses 4 to 10 is, is not Paul's CV of achievements hung up in the downstairs toilet wall. No, it's a stamp. It's a stamp on something rare and precious that says this is authentic. This is real. And we see that sacrificial service is the mark of authenticity. Look at these verses with me. In verses 4 to 5, we read about Paul's endurance and suffering. We commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. My goodness, that was Paul's life. That was the results that he experienced through exercising his ministry. But he doesn't give up. He patiently endures. He keeps going. And not only does he keep going, he keeps going with godliness. Uh, I don't know if you are aware of the new word hanger. Anyone familiar with hanger? Hanger is the, um, the hunger that makes you angry. Okay, it's a new thing. Hangry. If you're hangry, you're angry because you're hungry. Uh, it's a big thing in the Dennis household. <laughs> Mainly from me. And yet Paul, when he's hungry, when he's homeless, when he's the victim of beatings, imprisonments, uh, those experiences don't lead him to anger. They don't lead him to sinful resentment, but they lead to godliness. <clears throat> Verse 6, he continues to display the fruits of the spirits. Impurity, understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. This is real godliness. This is the real fruit of the Spirit in the most trying and difficult circumstances you can imagine. But he doesn't just endure the suffering. He doesn't just display the fruits of the Spirit. He continues to proclaim his message. Look at verse 7. In truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad reports and good reports. 
At any point, Paul could have just stopped talking. And if he'd stopped talking, trouble would have stopped following him around. But he doesn't. He won't. Because he's convinced of the truth of his message, whether people loved it or hated it. He speaks, he continues to speak with the weapons of righteousness in his right hand, his left hand. Possibly a a picture of a sword and a shield. But it's imagery saying, look, God's word is powerful. Paul's in a battle, but armed with the power of God, he will continue to speak. And then in verses 8 to 10, we have this wonderful series of opposites. Through glory and dishonour, bad reports and good reports. Genuine, yet regarded as imposters. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. It's glamorous, this ministry of reconciliation, isn't it? Anyone want in? Paul puts himself in this position because he's a servant of God's. And servants serve even when it's costly. These verses show that outwardly Paul had nothing, and yet inwardly he had everything. Sacrificial service is the mark of authenticity. Uh, Think back to that um, scenario we talked about at the beginning with the, the parents and the daughter. And you can imagine, can't you, the parents sitting down with the daughter pleading with her to see sense. And as they talk, they reflect on their life so far with her and they talk about the things they've done in the past. Things to show their daughter how much they care. The sacrifices they've made for her. Wise advice they've given her. And they don't say that because they want praise or glory or thanks They say that because they long for their daughter to know that they really do love her. They really do what's best for her, and so she can trust them. And I think if you can capture that moment, you get a sense of what Paul is trying to say here. He's saying sacrificial service, costly service, is the mark of authenticity. And so let me ask you, this question. I wonder what sorts of ministry might, do you find yourself being drawn towards? I don't know about you, but I can find it easy to find myself longing to be part of something big, something glamorous, something glossy. Ministries that make much of us. Ministries that seem to be acceptable in our wider cultural context. Ministries that only ever speak about love and grace and hope and and never about God's judgment. It feels nice, it feels attractive, it feels like I want to be part of that. A ministry is where those who lead make little sacrifice for those they serve. You can easily be drawn to that because it looks successful, particularly in the world's eyes, but more often than not, Not always, but more often than not, that is not what authentic ministry 
looks like. Because Paul says, this is what it looks like. It won't be an easy ride. It won't look successful. It will involve costly sacrifice, but that's authentic ministry. Now, yes, of course, Paul's experience here is extreme. We don't have to go through what Paul did in order for our ministry to be um, authentic. Of course we don't. But what Paul goes through here sets the pattern. It sets the pattern. This is the pattern of ministry that accompanies the gospel going out to the world. And it's what's real. And so it's wise, isn't it, that we think about what sort of ministry attracted to, but also as we think about our own ministries with individuals, with small groups, with friends, as we hold Christ out to the world. I wonder what are your expectations? And I wonder whether they follow the pattern that Paul lays down here. Sacrificial service is the mark of authenticity. And having established that, then Paul goes on to tell the church, I think, what it will look like for the church to respond. What it will look like for the church to open wide their hearts to Paul. So secondly, we see in this passage that distinction is the mark of belonging. Distinction is the mark of belonging. Let's go back again to this um, example of the, the parents and the daughter. As the daughter sat down with her parents, she, she suddenly begins to realise that her parents are right. And she's making a, a terrible mistake, a, a crazy mistake, and she, she comes to her senses. And we think, what would it look like now for that daughter to make a heartfelt response to what her parents have said? Well, I think the first step would be to cut ties Cut ties with those mates who are leading her astray. And that's what Paul encourages the church in Corinth to do. Just look at verse 14a. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. <clears throat> this uh, being yoked together is a, far, is a farming image. Uh, two oxen would be yoked together, that's bound together at the, the front of the plough, and together would pull the plough along. But it would never make sense to unite a, an oxen with a donkey or an oxen or a cat, etc. It doesn't work. The two don't go together. They won't work in partnership. Likewise, Paul says, a believer should not be yoked together, bound together with an unbeliever because the two have nothing in common. And Paul's rhetorical questions in verses 14 to 16 make that point, don't they? For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what can fellowship, what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And I think Belial, the word just means a person of nothingness or emptiness or, or wickedness, often understood to be Satan. What does the believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? <clears throat> uh, Paul's saying, well, of course, nothing. 
Nothing. These things are polar opposites. They cannot exist together. They are distinct. They cannot mix. Uh, These verses have been applied in all sorts of ways over the years. Uh, Some people have said, uh, this is a verse that explains why Christians shouldn't marry unbelievers. Other people have uh, used this verse to justify Christians separating themselves from the world completely. Now, whilst there might be some secondary implications for those questions, I don't think that's, those are the issues that Paul has in mind when he writes these verses. Remember that Paul has just been trying to defend himself, commend himself against those who are falsely, uh, the false teachers who are trying to ridicule his ministry, to try and discredit him. So Paul here is talking about not being yoked together with those within the church who masquerade as believers yet actually try and lure people away from the gospel and from those who proclaim it. And look at verse 14. He quite starkly and plainly calls these people what they are, unbelievers. Now as we, um, as we look around <clears throat> our churches, it's right and proper that we want to be generous to people. It's right that we want to assume the best of people and their theological convictions. It's right that we're not tribal. But there always have been and always will be false teachers within our church. And we must not be yoked together with them. We must not work in partnership with them because no matter how much they sound like Christians, if they don't believe the same gospel that Paul proclaims, then they are unbelievers. And we are to be distinct from them. And the reason that we are to be distinct from this false teaching and people who, who, who speak it is because God has made his people distinct Uh, Look at verses 16 to 18. In these verses, Paul loosely quotes uh, a number of different Old Testament passages, all of which emphasise the distinct identity of God's people. So verse 16. God's people are the temple of the living God. The temple in the Old Testament was the the holy place, the separate place where God dwelt in the midst of his people. And now Paul's saying the church is that temple, that holy place. Verse 16 again, God's people are the covenant people of God. As God had said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the refrain that sums up the covenant relationship. That is the relationship that separates God's people from the world. Verse 17. God's people are the the holy people of God brought back from exile. These verses are a quote from Isaiah 52. As God, uh, through Isaiah, prophesies the moment when his people will come back from exile. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. 
Touch no unclean and unclean thing, and I'll receive you. Come out, separate, Paul says. You've lost your identity in exile in Babylon. Now I'm going to reform you back in your land so that you will be my people. Or verse 18. God's people are the sons of God or daughters. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now this one's interesting. Because this one is a quote from 2 Samuel 7.14 where God promises David a son. A son who will reign on his throne forever. But here, Paul changes the word to sons and daughters. Why does Paul do that? Well, because he's making a really important point and it's this. All these Old Testament pictures, the holy the, the, the temple, the covenants, the return from exile, the king, all these pictures are pointing forward to, to Christ, the king, the true son of God, the one who was perfectly holy, the one who was perfectly separate, perfectly distinct. And it is only in him, the true son, that God's people are made sons and daughters, adopted into God's family. And it is only in Christ that God's people are called out of the world, are made holy and separate. And so Paul is saying to the church here in Corinth, and to us today, he's saying, this is who you are. You are the distinct people of God, that Christ has made you. Distinction is the mark of belonging. This is who you are now, and so Paul says to you, how can you yoke yourself together with unbelievers? How can you sit under their teaching? For what do you have in common with them? That's not who you are anymore. And so therefore, 7 verse 1, he gives this instruction. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence from God. <clears throat> Let's just think as we draw to a close about how we might apply this to our, um, our context. I think often when we approach these verses, and particularly 7 verse 1, we, we naturally tend to apply it individually. But I think Paul is speaking corporately here to his church as a whole. And he's saying, church, be distinct. Do not be yoked together with false teachers. And you think, that's great. Good, got it. But tell me what that looks like in practice. Well, that's the question, isn't it? And that's not easy. Uh, there's no easy answers. On, on a local level, I think it's easier. If someone came into St. Mary's, and uh, either from up front here or uh, down there, started trying to preach another gospel that was different to the gospel that Paul preached and taught, it wouldn't matter how charismatic they are, how friendly they are, how persuasive they are, how engaging they are, how attractive what they say sounds. We must separate ourselves from them. 
we must be distinct. Easier on a local level. On a wider level, a bit more tricky. What does it look like not to work in partnership, not to be bound together with unbelievers? Oh, I guess the question is, what does partnership look like? So, for example, it's probably not escaped your awareness, we're part of the Church of England. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Church of England is a church organisation that is full of all sorts of false teaching preached by unbelievers. How do we apply this passage to the Church of England? It's really complicated, it's really tricky. And I think the answer to that question depends on what our understanding of partnership is. What does partnership look like within the Church of England? I'm not going to give any answers to that because I'm not sure I've I've gotten it. I think it's tricky. But here's the thing, and this is where the passage has challenged me this week. I'm naturally the type of person who wants to be friends with people. I don't like making enemies. I want to be generous and I want to be inclusive. That's just the way I've been made. I don't like conflict. But that means that I can err towards being over-generous towards saying, come on, everyone in. We're all in this together. And so Paul's preaching in, in this, this, uh, this letter is a stark reminder that sometimes as a church we will need to make stark, hard calls for the sake of protecting the church from false teaching. And we do that because we love the gospel. We love the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given We long for people to come to know their Heavenly Father. It wouldn't be at all surprising if at some point in the future St Mary's has to make a decision about what we do and how we respond to some of these issues. And we need to bear 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 in mind and prayerfully ask for God's wisdom. We've seen tonight then that sacrificial service is the mark of authenticity And distinction is the mark of belonging. Let's be a church family who, because we are confident that we belong to Christ, his sons and daughters, let us be a people that sacrificially serve and distinctively live. Let's pray. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Loving Father, we do thank you for that precious promise fulfilled in Christ. That in him, as your sons and daughters, we have been made holy, separate and distinct. And so we pray that by your spirit you would help us to purify ourselves from everything that contaminates your body, the church, that you would help us to perfect holiness 
out of reverence for you. And we pray this in the name of your Son in whom we belong. Amen.